If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. This morning, we will be considering chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. I mentioned last week that we have entered a part of the text where Paul is giving a four-point lesson in ethics. And this is most likely due to the letter that, or report that Timothy brought back, um, specific issues that the church was facing, um, particular topics that they needed teaching or correcting. Um, and so Paul spends some time here in chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 addressing these specific issues. He began this series on a topic of sexual morality. And this week he will continue on the topic of affection and shift its focus just a bit. This week will be how we treat one another. Interestingly, he does this by tying in a theme of hard work. And we'll see momentarily why he does so. Now, we're unsure of the exact issue that the church was facing. Uh, but by looking at the text and, and looking at some other places, we can come to a conclusion um, what was going on needed correcting. In fact, I would dare say this topic of brotherly love, if unchecked or not seen about, could, much like the topic of sexual ethics, unravel the church from inside out. We recognize that the church in Thessalonica was facing intense persecution. In fact, the first three chapters really deal with that matter. But here, when Paul goes on to these four specific issues, he really focuses, he really drives home the point that it's what's within the church that's just as important, if not more important, than what's going on outside. And so he dedicates these verses to this topic at hand. And we all know, um, we've all lived lives that understand that dissension, that division, that discord can break friendships, relationships, deals, businesses. It can unravel everything. And if that's the case in the world, how much more so is it within the church? With that in mind, I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, as we hear Paul's answer to this very important problem. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no reason for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. The grass withers and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let us go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, as we again come before you, we recognize our own hearts. We may feel the weight of this passage against them, knowing those seasons in our lives where we have been difficult to deal with, where we have not been very loving, where we have been idle, in fact. 
And we ask your forgiveness, O Lord. We pray that Paul's words would ring in our ears and our minds and our hearts today that we may repent of these false understandings about how things have to be. Help us, O Lord, to instead live a life in accord with your word, that we might love one another, that we might work hard, and that we might promote the kingdom of God in all that we say and all that we do. We pray understanding over your text and pray for the ability to receive it well in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Long before Nick Saban took on the headship of the Alabama Crimson Tide, it was helmed by another great man in his time. Arthur Bear Bryant said once in a biography that his greatest regret was that he didn't speak more openly about his Christian beliefs. But many would argue and many would speak of him after his death that his Christian beliefs were precisely what allowed this great football coach to do more than just coach, but to mentor, to teach, and to shape the lives of these young men that he was given. And there's a story that's almost as famous as Coach Bryant's legacy that goes something like this. On a recruiting trip... Coach Bryant found himself in this hole-in-the-wall restaurant after not successfully being able to convince a young man to join his Alabama team. He seemed a bit lost and a bit out of place in this restaurant, and yet at the same time, he smiled and showed kindness. He bragged on the food and spoke to everyone in the room. He talked to the owner And more than that, he promised the owner a signed autograph when he could get home, taking his name and number and address on a napkin. And Bear Bryant would send that autograph and that picture. Well, years later, that man, the owner's grandson, had a chance to go to college and play football. He had his heart set on Auburn. If you know anything about the SEC, Auburn and Alabama are fierce rivals. Well, the grandfather got wind of this and had a stern talking to with his grandson. And he said to him, you will go and play at Alabama. You will go and play under Bear Bryant. For that man will do more than coach you. He will train you into being a man. And he did. And he went and played for Alabama at his grandfather's Request And some say that his picture still hangs in that restaurant today. But Bear Bryant in a biography was recounting the story to some of his coaches. And he says this, It really doesn't cost anything to be nice. And the rewards can be unimaginable. I can't personally speak to Bear Bryant's faith, not having known him. But I can say that he was quite right on this account. Christians above all people, should be known for their hospitality and for their kindness toward all others, regardless of the situation. You can go all the way back to God's word given to the people in Exodus and Leviticus. You will see that a particular interest is placed on the well-being of outsiders and of strangers. 
There are laws in place about how to treat those that are not part of your own, more so how to treat people that are of your house and of your family and of your background. And even today, we have Paul exhorting the church to grow in this topic we will call brotherly love. Now, we have to admit that Paul has to speak to them on this topic for a reason. While we'll get to in a moment, they are doing some things well, there are some areas that they could improve on. And just as much as the church had reason to improve on these areas, I would dare say we too have reason to improve on our hospitality, on our love, on our kindness. And so I dare challenge us this morning to consider this text and consider these two points as we weigh what does it mean to love one another and what does it mean to be about hard work. We're going to see first in verses 9 and 10 that Christians ought to grow in their love for one another. And then secondly, we will see that good work is a mark of godly life. And we'll find this in verses 11 and 12. With that in mind, let's jump into verse 9 and start unpacking this beautiful passage by Paul. And as we do so, I'm, I'm sure that you've heard before, I'm sure that I've said it before. In the Greek language, there are many different words for the English word love. And scholars love to pick them apart and they love to get to the nuances of, well, in this circumstance you use this one, in this circumstance you use this one. And there's a little bit of uh, fluidity in definition. For any of you that have studied Greek before, you well know this to be the case. But Paul here says, note brotherly love. And I will admit I find that phrase fascinating. I'm the oldest of three. I have two brothers. And I come to a couple of conclusions about this before we even say anything theological. One the person that coined brotherly love did not have any brothers. Or two, I didn't grow up demonstrating brotherly love. One of the two are true. Because what Jesus and God and Paul are really saying here, and what I found often in my heart and in my life, they weren't the same thing. That probably speaks more to my own heart than to the pinning of this word. But if you saw it in the Greek, you would see that this is the word philia, um, of which Philadelphia gets its name, the city of brotherly love. And it's interesting to note that Paul uses that here because in the time of Paul, this phrase often meant the way in which a family member treated another family member. It's a bond that people have that comes from God himself because you don't pick your family for the most part. And if you're like me, again, you learned early on, it's best to get along with your family. You're kind of stuck with them. It's not like you can hide it or get away from it. This is a level of connection, brotherly love or family love that's not shared in any other relationship. The NIV here does something interesting, which I think aids our understanding. It translates this mutual love. 
It's a love that's not one-sided. It's a love that's agreed upon. It's a love that is by all parties. It's mutual. It's not forced. This is why it's called brotherly love, or elsewhere it's called family love. Now, back to our text, why would Paul use such a phrase of the church? You see, Paul understood that the church must become a family. They must be just as close with each other as siblings are, as a child to a parent or to a grandparent. This was vital for the church community. For if you've ever worked with people that don't get along, you know how difficult it can be. And that's not saying that there won't be disagreements, just like we could expect siblings to disagree from time to time. But at the root of the matter, Paul is saying here, there must be love in the Christian community. And in verse 9, Paul tells us where this must come from, using the exact same pattern he did last week. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul says that the truth of this matter doesn't come from him, but from God. It is God who has taught them how to love each other. And to see this, we would look no further than Jesus Christ himself. John 15, Jesus gives one of his I am statements. We're told that he is the vine and we are the branches. And just as much as a branch needs the vine in order to live and then further produce fruit, we need Christ in order to live and to produce spiritual fruit. And as he's concluding this section, he gives these words about what it means to love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus had not only demonstrated love by giving up his life, he also calls us to do the same. More than that, he says that true love is a love that is obedient to God and God's word. And didn't he demonstrate this as well? He didn't only go to the cross, but he fulfilled everything on account of God and God's will for his life. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And this is what Paul is telling the church here. God has taught you how to love. You know the truth from Scripture. We don't need to add any more to that. And he doesn't add any more to that. He says, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, what we encourage you or urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. See how he's using this familial language. See how he is using brothers. He is respecting them on that level. He's encouraging that family aspect. The church is not ignorant of what the Bible calls them to do. He says so here. You know what is right. You know what to do. You've received it from God himself. But grow all the more. Nurture this. Fertilize this. Strengthen this. See that this grows in your heart and in your lives. This is vital for you as a Christian and for you as a church. This is vital. And the beautiful thing we read here is that they were doing it. 
And they weren't just doing it locally. He says so. You are doing this to all the brothers throughout Macedonia and all of the region. The Thessalonican church was demonstrating love. Now, we're not sure if they were showing kindness to people as they passed through the town or not, or if they were financially supporting or in prayer supporting the churches of the region. But Paul knows that they have been demonstrating this love for each other and for the church. And this is something that Paul is very passionate about. Paul is very passionate about uniting the church. Paul is very passionate about calling all believers to recognize that we are one body. Not many bodies. We are one body with the head, Jesus Christ. And as we serve the Lord, we serve one another. And as we serve one another, we serve the Lord. And it's in our best interest to care about what's going on in the the church. Now, we know that this would look strange to the outside world, especially in their particular situation. Their conversion has caused quite the stir, and it's likely the source of all of the persecution from a mostly Jewish audience. We know that there were at least a few Jews in the church at this time, although mostly comprised of Gentiles, and this would look strange to a Jewish audience. This acting of love, regardless of background, regardless of social status. But it's precisely for this reason that Paul exhorts them to display it. Because let's think about our own lives. Don't we take notice at kindness shown to us, especially if we don't deserve it? Sometimes it's someone opening the door for us. Sometimes it's someone picking something up that we have left behind. And the kindness could go on and on. We could think all morning about different ways people have shown kindnesses to us in our lives. In fact, I would dare say that if you sat and thought about it for a moment, you could likely recall the last unexpected or undeserved kindness to you. They stay there. They implant in our brains. Why? Because we know our hearts. We know we don't deserve it. We know that no one should be doing anything for us. For we're sinful. And yet, if kindness has that effect on people's lives, we as Christians, we must be about that business. We must be the ones doing that. We must be the ones opening doors. We must be the one picking up packages. We must be the one loving our neighbors. This gives a glimpse into a much kinder world. And we all know, because we know ourselves, that this is an area that we can all improve on. Paul exhorts the church, not you need to learn how to do this, but do it more and more. And we too would follow this advice. We too should listen well to what Paul is saying. But Paul didn't just write it to remind them, to encourage them to keep it up. There is an issue at hand. There is a task that needs correcting. And we see that um, by turning to our next section. And so I invite you to look with me now at verses 11 and 12 to get the full picture. For if we just stayed in 9 and 10, we would be left with this very encouraging, very positive picture. And it is an encouraging, positive picture. But it's to be seen in light of the whole. So let's turn our attention to part two, where we see good work is a mark of godly 
living. Paul says, beginning the sentence in verse 11, But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, this raises several questions that we need to answer. And the first one, how can Paul call us to demonstrate brotherly love and in the same sentence call us to live quietly and mind our own affairs? Aren't those two things counterproductive? And then secondly, we need to ask, why does Paul instruct the church to work with their hands and remind them that he's already done this before, that this is not the first time he's had to tell them this? And how does that fit into the bigger picture? Well, we actually see the answer in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Well, we need to unpack that for a bit. For While that is a good answer, we probably need to understand those questions a little better so that we appreciate what Paul is saying here. And there's some different ways of looking at this. One understanding of Paul calling us to live a quiet life is saying something like this. You've endured much persecution for your conversion. Now live simple, quiet life so that you do not attract unwanted attention. A lot of commentators believe this is the case. A lot of commentators look at this and say, you know, church, you've suffered enough. You've been through a lot. You've endured intense persecution, so much so it's pained Paul himself. Just back off. Just be quiet, keep to yourself. Maybe people will leave you alone. And while I understand where they're coming from in this, I don't think that this is the best understanding here. For Paul was willing to go into towns after he had been beaten near to death to preach the gospel again. Paul leaves a mark everywhere he goes for the sake of the gospel, not worried at all about his life or his reputation or what may come of him. Jesus Christ himself left quite a stir, didn't he? When he came, when he served others, when he loved, when he performed miracles, when he taught. All people would be left in his wake different in some way or another. And so while I appreciate what some commentators are saying here, I don't think just sit back and be quiet is the best way to understand this. No, I actually agree with Matthew Henry, where he says this should be quiet-tempered. Note what he says in his commentary. It is the most desirable thing to have a calm and quiet temper and to be of a peaceable and quiet behavior. This tends much to our own and others' happiness. And Christians should study how to be quiet. We should be ambitious and industrious how to be calm and quiet in our minds and patient to possess it in our souls and to be quiet toward others or of meek and mild, a gentle and peaceable disposition not given to strife, contention, or division. Satan is very busy to disquiet us, and we have that in our own hearts that dispossesses us to be disquiet. Therefore, let us study quietness. This would go along well if you thought of the fruit of the Spirit. This would also echo what Jesus teaches in his blessed statements from the Sermon on the Mount. Quiet in spirit. But please hear me when I say that, that I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak up on issues that are important or that matter to us. 
But go back to his original point. The point is to show brotherly love. We all know if we have siblings that there's a difference. There's a difference in having a conversation with a sibling because of truth or because you want to share an opinion. And then there's also a difference in siblings when you want to cause a discord, when you want to cause a fight. You knew those words going in. You knew how to make that opinion known. You knew how to address it, when to address it, to start those wheels turning. But yet Paul is saying here, brotherly love is demonstrated by a quiet life, a life that is thoughtful, a life that considers what one says before they say it. Not that they don't speak at all, but that they consider how it might be received even before they deliver it. And then he furthers that by saying that we should mind our own business. To that, I think back to Jesus' statement in Matthew 6 on anxiety. Jesus says, Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We could modify that a little bit to fit it into our text, and it might read something like this. Therefore, do not be anxious about the affairs of others, for those affairs will be anxious for themselves. Sufficient for the day are your own troubles. I'm sure you know people that make their business the business of others. Sometimes these people spend so much energy, so much attention on everything else that is going on, they neglect their own selves. But Paul is saying here, this does not demonstrate brotherly love, to be a busybody. True brotherly love is tending to oneself, watching your own heart, for isn't that the heart that we know the best? Now, this is not saying we ignore the needs of others. We are called to consider when a brother stumbles. We're to be there to help them, to pick them up, to encourage them, to bring them back in. But there is a difference in being a friend and being someone who pokes at others, getting them to go to your way of thinking or to agree with you. But Paul doesn't want us to to listen to this or understand this and then conclude the best course of action would be to sit back and do nothing. This would not be to show brotherly love either. He makes this point by saying, you are to work with your hands as we instructed you. And it's here when we really start to think about this statement that we begin to realize what might be going on in the church that calls Paul to make this exhortation known. We know from chapter 5 of this letter, as well as in 2 Thessalonians, that there were a lot of concerns about the return of Christ. We've mentioned a few of them as we've gone through this book, realizing that in each chapter, at least once, Paul addresses the return of Jesus. But there were some things going on, and, and really some competing opinions. One, Jesus Christ's return would be any day now. It is imminent. It would happen soon. Or there was another view circling around in this time that Jesus had already returned, that the people had missed it. And unfortunately, this led people to sit back in an idle fashion to not do anything and really have this mindset of, what's the point? 
Paul did not want this behavior to continue, though. He reminds them he has spoken to them about this before. Work with your hands because work is given to man by God before the fall, mind you. Work is a good thing and man is called to do so. Now, it is one thing to have a desire to work and not be able to. And I'm not wanting to make light of that circumstance, and I'm not speaking to that in this text. We're more talking about the people who have ability and yet no desire, no drive. And this takes us back to Paul's rationale in verse 12. It comes full circle. Act in brotherly love. Live quiet lives. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Now, I admit in our Western culture, it may be hard to grasp what's going on here. Individualism and the right to a private life is pretty essential to the American mindset. But remember, in Bible times and in different parts of the world, people live more closely connected. Families tend to live together, tend to share life together. Needs are the needs of the whole, not the needs of the individual. And it's to these groups that Paul is warning them, don't be idle. For your idleness doesn't only affect you, it affects the group. And ultimately, it would affect the church. We are blessed with many programs and, and many different ways of helping people who need help. But historically, that task fell on the church. It was the church that cared for the sick. It was the church that cared for the children. It was the church that cared for the elderly. And so these idle people were being a burden to the church. This was inhibiting the church's ability then to take what they had, to take their resources and bless others. For they were having to spend so much dealing with these people who could work, but weren't because they had become idle. And if we put it all together, Paul is saying here, the key to living a godly life before others is love. Love for each other allows us to work hard, to mind our own matters, to live quiet lives, and give just like Christ gave. Paul is teaching them how to live as Christians. He's explaining how they can win over angry neighbors. It's by loving them. And we would do well to take this message to heart today. While we may not be as persecuted as the Thessalonican church was, I'm certain that we live in communities and work among people who look down on us for our Christian beliefs. Whatever shall we do to persuade them that we're not crazy or dangerous? We love them. We show brotherly love by working hard, by seeking opportunities to care for them and tend to them. Caring for our own business so that we're not a burden to our community. We show kindness, especially when it's not reciprocated. Ultimately, we grow in God's word. For remember, you've been taught to love by God. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so the key to this problem, how do I live in brotherly love and how do I serve others by caring for my own life? Obedience to God's word. 
Loving God and loving others. Isn't that what Jesus said is the great commandment? And if we do that, if we're willing to step that way and and to seek this path, we just might find people asking, why? Why are you treating me that way? Why are you acting that way? It makes no sense. What's in it for you? And it's in those moments we have an opportunity to say, well, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus who had nothing in it for him, and yet he gave. He gave everything. I think there was a lot of wisdom in Bear Bryant's statement. It really doesn't cost anything to be nice, and the rewards can be unimaginable. I believe a lot of what Paul is saying here can be seen in that statement. But I would amend it We must be nice. We must treat others with love. And the rewards are imaginable because they come from God. They come from God's Word. And that, my friends, is good news. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this topic of brotherly love is one that, on one hand, Many of us may understand all too well what it means to love people who are not very loving. And yet at the other time, Lord, we long for opportunities to meet together, to be together, to demonstrate this for one another, for our communities. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would give us opportunities to live godly lives before those around us. We ask that you would help us work on our own hearts that we might be quiet-minded and quiet-tempered that we might work diligently and not be idle in our ways, thinking, what is the point? You have given us work, and you've declared it good. And you know, Lord, that we need to follow you and follow your ways in all things. And it's when we start deciding that our own ideas are better that we get in trouble. So we ask for your help, O Lord. We thank you for this time that you've given us this morning, and we ask that you be with us as we go our separate ways. We ask this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.